<laughs> All right, welcome to uh, Adult Sunday School. Can you turn on the volume? I'm used to talking a lot louder, and I don't want to blast you all out. Um, the consistory and Reverend Brown thought it would be a good idea in the run-up to uh, the Reformation Conference to look at the life and thought of, of Martin Luther. So we're going to, after Dr. Godfrey's beginning introduction last week, we're going we're gonna to start and just creep forward into, uh, into Luther's life, in part because I, I thought I had more time. I thought we had 45 minutes, and we only have like 25, um, and in part also because I move very slowly. Is that right? We have till 12.15? Reverend Brown's only 12. Don't go against the domini. Till 12.15? I realize how big that clock is back there now. There really is no excuse for our services ever going over. <laughs> uh, it's just sort of there, a constant reminder of the passage of time. Well, then we could just bla- blaze ahead and, uh, and see where we go. But, so we're going to begin uh, looking at, at, at Martin Luther um, there on our, on our whiteboard. That's a picture of, uh-oh, we're not ready for the map yet. Uh, that's a picture of the famous statue that's in Wittenberg, right near the Wittenberg Church and right near Luther's house, the old Augustinian monastery. Um, we thought about doing maybe the whole Reformation a little bit here and there, but Luther's such a captivating individual. I mean, he's, he's a hero of the Reformation, uh, a pioneer of the reform of the church in the 16th century, and his theological insights, of course, uh, are what has given him the reputation that he has as this champion uh, of the faith. But it's also, truth be told, part of the strength of his personality, the sheer force of his personality. He, he, he was a big-hearted man uh, with a colorful character and personality. Um, he, he was a kind of virtuoso in friendship. Um, if, you, if you were one of Luther's friends... Uh, he would have your back. In fact, he gave wide latitude sometimes, sometimes too wide latitude to his friends. Uh, and, and we know from, from table talk and some of his writings that people would linger at the table, at the dinner table, when they'd come to visit Luther. Pastors and theologians would come from all over Europe uh, to, to dine with the man, to, to learn from him. And he loved to, to sit there late in the evening uh, telling jokes uh, he's known for sort of self-deprecating humor. He died fairly overweight, kind of corpulent man, and said, "Finally, I'll, I'll give the doctor, or I'll give the, the worms a, a fat doctor to feast on." Um, so he could be self-deprecating. Sometimes he could be uh, a little crass. I'm not entirely sure if this is appropriate for Sunday school, but uh, he said that he he liked to redeem the time uh, sometimes by praying on the toilet and would tell his friends that what went up belonged to God, and what went down belonged to the devil. Uh, <laughs> so he was a man of the earth. He, he rubbed shoulders uh, with people of all walks of life, and, and people loved that, really, about his personality. Um, he loved his wife and his kids, uh, warm, warm-hearted man with his children, playing, playing the guitar and singing, singing songs with them, writing letters to, to other villages to find Christmas presents uh, for his little kids. So he, he was a warm-hearted man. He definitely had fierce uh, anger. He had, he had a zeal for the Lord, uh, 
if, if Luther was no longer your friend, you didn't get a second chance. Uh, he, he banished more than one co-worker of the Reformation and reformer from, from the city of Wittenberg. Uh, in fact, he had a very famous meeting with a reformer from, from Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was a, a former mercenary uh, in, the Swiss, in the Swiss army. Uh, he was a man hardened by, by war. Uh, he knew his business. But when Luther met him, Luther refused to shake his hand in a theological disputation. And, and at the end of the disputation, Swingley was so frustrated he was brought to tears because Luther didn't trust him. And if you weren't Luther's friend, he basically said to Swingley, you're of the devil. Uh, you're not a co-worker in Christ. I think he got that one wrong, but that's, that's something of the spark of his personality and the strength of his personality. Um, of course, he, he was a man of deep uh, theological insight, um, penetrating insights into the scriptures. You think of his sermons and commentaries on the book of Romans, his discoveries in the book of Romans and in Galatians, uh, recovering the, the, the truths that we hold, the solas of the Reformation. Um, and when he, when he communicated, uh, people marveled at how simply and clearly uh, he could put things. Uh, the scriptures laid open uh, before them, and, and they were grateful for it. He's written some of the, the classics in Western literature. I mean, instant, instant classics uh, in, in theology, his freedom of the Christian. Um, the 95 Theses, of course, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those next week. Um, one of the things that you love about Luther is it's almost always more enjoyable to read Luther himself than books about Luther because he was such a clear communicator. Uh, he could be short and pithy sometimes, um, but go into great detail um, and, uh, in, the, in the recovery of Reformation truth. Uh, so what we're going to do for today here uh, is try to introduce Luther and a little bit of the late medieval world in which he lived. Try to understand something about the state of the church uh, right at the, on the eve of the Reformation. And we're going to do that just by easing into Luther's biography a little bit. We'll, we'll meet Luther. We may cover his birth and his baptism today. That's all I can promise. I don't know. This could be a 600-part Sunday school series uh, at that pace. So we'll find other places to speed things up. But uh, we do have it until noon. So we, it's a short, the short version. All right. Here is uh, a map of Germany, or at least part of Germany. And, and Luther's family hailed from sort of this region up in here. He's born in Eisleben, uh, and most of his early life has traveled around here. He lives in Mansfeld for a while. Um, maybe it helps to just get oriented to the map here a little bit. Uh, it's helpful to always look for Heidelberg. There's Heidelberg way down in the corner. Um, we always know where Heidelberg is. There's Marburg. That's where he met Swingley and reduced the man to tears. Um, and, and Berlin is up here in this area. So that's the, the area that, uh, that Luther is from. And here is a wonderful, uh, these are actually two separate portraits just put side by side here, of Luther's, Luther's parents, uh, Hans and Margrethe. Uh, they were sort of middle class peasant folks, uh, sturdy, sturdy stock. Luther's father, according to laws and customs at the time, was the second born son. So the firstborn inherited the family farm, 
and he went off to find another profession, uh, and it happened to be mining. He managed to cobble together some funds and, and bought or rented some mines near Eisleben uh, on the map about the time that, that, uh, that Luther was born. Uh, they arrived in the city in 1483, and his wife, Margaret, was already pregnant uh, with, with young Martin. Actually, a kind of funny story. We don't, well, we're pretty sure when, when Luther was born. He himself didn't know when he was born. Um, he gave us several different dates throughout his life, and it confused historians ever since then. Uh, to give you an idea of maybe some of the superstition uh, that was uh, alive and well in the world at that time. His, his co-laborer, Philip Melanchthon, a later reformer, uh, was kind of obsessed with horoscopes, of all things. It was a little blurry back then, the difference between astrology and astronomy. Uh, and so he was a stargazer, and he, he's the one who pinpointed Luther's date. So we're relatively sure of his birth date, but Melanchthon basically figured out Luther's horoscope and worked backwards <laughs> and, and gave us gave us this date uh, in November. And, of course, there's other stories uh, uh, about, about Melanchthon and, and astrology and, and what kind of trouble it got Luther into. Um, Luther's mom was uh, almost certainly the more religious and pious uh, of the two parents. She was pretty typical, I think, for her times. Um, I wouldn't say obsessed with, with the devil, but most everyone who lived in, that, in the late medieval world lived in a world where devilish forces were, were at work. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's a, hard, a hard life in the late medieval world. There's a lot of disease, pestilence. If the plague came through, your entire village could be wiped out. And so the question was always, what devilish forces are at work in the ups and downs uh, of life? And there's some amusing stories about, about Margareta. Uh, thinking that the devils played little tricks on her, sort of stealing her eggs and milk from the larder, uh, kind of the apple pie that disappears from the ledge of the kitchen uh, counter. Uh, she, she lived in a world where, where that was possible. A more sobering story, uh, Luther was the oldest of the surviving children uh, in the family, but uh, a boy had been born before who died, and, and Margaret was convinced the neighbor next door was a witch, and that that's the reason why uh, the son had died, because of her uh, sort of demonic activity. And so a world uh, filled with superstition, uh, a, an active kind of spiritual world uh, in which, in which uh, Luther was born. So as far as Melanchthon tells us, the 10th of November, 1483, uh, Luther is born, and immediately the next day, He's baptized in the church uh, of St. Peter and Paul. Um, I think there's an occasion here why I said we're only going to sort of meet Luther, get him born, and get him baptized. It's because we can stop here and start to think a little bit more about the late medieval world and the state of the church uh, on the day of Luther's, Luther's birth. Just by thinking about something as simple and straightforward as, as his name and, and baptismal practices uh, at the time. The day after Luther was born was a saint's day, St. Martin. And so when Luther was baptized, the very next day, he was given the name of the saint on whose day he was, on day, whose day he was born. This was a common uh, religious practice. There were lots of saint's days, and if you were born or baptized on one of them, that's how you would get your name. Um, now, 
we're maybe more interested in Geneva. I certainly know more about Geneva than, than Luther and Wittenberg. And there's stories running through the 16th century about naming and baptismal practices um, in Geneva. In terms of naming, um, before the Reformation, we know this from church records, in Geneva, uh, some 30% of all the children's baptized were given saints' names. And less than 2% were given biblical names. One of the major impacts uh, of the Reformation on, on daily practical family life was naming practices. After the Reformation, it's an almost complete reversal. 35% of Genevans named, gave their children biblical names instead of saints' names or, or pagan names. And uh, by roughly 1550, 1575, uh, only 1% of babies born in Geneva were given a saint's name. Uh, it's an almost complete reversal. A lot of biblical names. Well, why? Piety is changing. Understanding of, of, of how the Christian world, uh, the, God, the world that, the God, that, that God created um, and, and superintends providentially is changing. The power of the saints slowly is, is, is diminished. Um, sometimes, well, most of the time this happened willingly, the naming practices. People began reading the Bibles and identified with the heroes and characters of the Old Testament especially, and, and willingly and eagerly named their children after them. Uh, in other cases, the city council of Geneva actually passed laws about, about how you could name your children, and you couldn't name them after saints anymore. And, of course, there's a few of the really horrible stories that just make you cringe. Uh, when, when the parents come up to baptize in Geneva, on a few occasions, the, the minister would simply disregard the, the parents' <laughs> suggestions and give the child their own biblical name uh, if, a, if a saint's name was, was suggested by, by the parent. Um, fortunately, those stories are, there's not very many of them. Um, but that's how, that's how naming practices shift radically. But it, it speaks to a new interest in the Bible, a new knowledge of the Bible that maybe didn't, people didn't have before. Um, in terms of baptismal practices, in the, in the late medieval world, uh, you wanted to be baptized as close to birth is absolutely possible. So one of the major changes is that is the, uh, the baptism becomes a public ordinance. Uh, for, for the late medieval people, for Luther, um, it was private baptism frequently, frequently administered by midwives. If there was any question about the child's health, if you died without receiving the sacrament of baptism, uh, it was sure purgatory. And so you didn't mess around. In fact, to go back to Geneva, there are examples of the Genevan consistory disciplining families for basically being impatient. The child's born, and they didn't want to wait for the next Sunday for the ministers to baptize their child. So on the sly, they would call in a Roman Catholic priest to come into their house and baptize their children. And the consistory tried to work through this. Um, and, and educating people about the nature of the sacrament, what it means. Um, of course, it's ordinarily preferable to be baptized, but to die in infancy without being baptized does not, does not consign uh, the child to hell. And, and, and the reformers were um, adamant in assisting this and, and slowly persuaded um, people in the church of the importance of public baptism. Um, 
Okay, how about saints? Uh, this may seem a, a bit of a, of a, a rabbit trail, but uh, the religious world into which Luther was born was a world filled with saints. There was a, a kind of uh, uh, gallery of saints to choose from. And it's worth sort of investigating that a little bit to see, see what we can tease out of it in terms of popular piety. What was the, how did people understand uh, religion and Christianity in those days? Um, in terms of saints' days, uh, you know, we could go back to the 17th, uh, 7th century. There, there are examples of the Pantheon in Rome, this great pagan temple uh, being taken over and converted uh, to a place of Christian worship and, and uh, named after uh, or dedicated to St. Mary. Um, and, and, of course, the church is filled with relics. Um, but at the time of, of the Reformation, it's maybe helpful to ask, why did saints grow to such prominence? Uh, I mean, this, it, was, it was international business uh, to trade in relics and in images of saints. I mean, it was big business throughout the entire medieval world. Um, Luther's patron, the, to share a few amusing stories, Luther's patron in, in Wittenberg, uh, Frederick the Wise, was one of the great collectors of relics and images of saints. And there are there are some really wonderful stories that Luther loved to tell after he'd become Protestant of the kinds of things in Frederick the Wise's uh, catalog of, of relics. Um, just to give you a few, um, a piece of straw from Jesus' manger was one of the relics that was claimed. Um, lots of teeth, lots of teeth of other saints, apostles, disciples, um, a piece of gold that one of the wise men had brought to Jesus, uh, some of Jesus' diaper. Uh, these, are, these are actually cataloged relics. In, 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 uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, a piece of the, <laughs> of the, of the burning bush uh, where God spoke to Moses. That's maybe one of the least plausible of a list of implausible relics. Um, but trading in these relics, the collecting of these relics, uh, and all the relics, of course, tied to saints, was, was big business, and it was important. And, and it was so important that when, you know, when Luther was born, his, his parents named him after the Saints' Day. So why? Why are the saints so important? Primarily, it's because the image of Jesus that loomed large in everyone's imagination was Jesus as a judge, a strict judge. He's aloof. Uh, he's, he's greatly removed from you, sitting in heaven next to the right hand of the Father, not making intercession, but waiting with a sword of judgment to, to just drop down on you. There are other pictures of Jesus, but in terms of how the, the majority of of late medieval Christians understood Jesus, he was a judge. He was stern and, and ready to bring wrath in the second judgment. That's, that's the world they lived in. And so there's a huge problem that's created because of this one-sided image of Jesus, a problem of mediation, a problem of who will be your intercessor. And this is why saints rise to prominence slowly from roughly the 8th century up to 1,000 A.D. is when they really take on importance, and then into the 
1500s when Luther's, when Luther's born. A saint is somebody who, who knew you. Most of the saints are local, like St. Martin. Um, they were people who sort of grew up with you in your village. You, you knew them. They knew you. Um, you went to a neighboring village, they'd have a different saint. And, and you didn't care so much about theirs. But your local saint was important. He understood you. A lot of times they had to do with your profession. Uh, if you were a woodworker, a farmer, a seaman, a soldier, there was a saint for each one of those professions. That saint climbed into your life with you, woke up with you in the morning, knew the kind of day-to-day existence that you had, and so he, he could be a friend to you. And, and you would appeal to these saints to make intercession for you because, because Jesus was a, a frightening, terrifying figure. Um, now, there are examples of sort of super saints, not, not so much local uh, or ones having to do with your vocation. But Mary, of course, uh, is, is a sort of all-star super saint. Um, she's everyone's mother. She's the mother of God, but she's the one with maternal instincts who can, who can nurture you and, and protect you and care from you. Here's a quote from an 18th century Roman theologian give you an idea of the contrast between Jesus, the judge, and, and Mary, the saint who, who understands you. Uh, this is a quote from, from a book about Mary from 18th century Roman Catholic. If God is angry with a sinner and Mary takes him under her protection, she withholds the avenging arm of her son and saves him. He fails and is lost who, is not, who has not recourse to Mary. And so you begin praying to Mary, as you pray to all the saints. Um, the whole Hail Mary sort of slips my mind, but pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Uh, intercede for us, in other words. Um, that's the world that they, that they lived in. Um, in the sort of five minutes we have left, I think it's worth just sort of brainstorming here. We haven't made it very far into Luther's life. I acknowledge um, he's been baptized and named. But it's important to help sort of anticipate what will Luther's response be? Um, well, in a simple way, when, when Luther, the first time he held the Bible in a complete form was after he'd become a monk in the monastery. And so later on as a monk, he opens the scriptures and reads the entire Bible for the first time. And, and nowhere in scripture is Mary or a saint uh, given, given the importance of being a mediator between us and God. And so, I mean, all kinds of scriptural passages maybe, maybe come flooding to your mind. Uh, Christ is the sole mediator of the new covenant, um, the, the, the book of Hebrews tells us. Or, I mean, some of you can think of verses 2. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, what, what would be another... First Timothy two five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Acts four twelve. There's there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. Um, or or Hebrews seven. He he is able to save fully, uh, and ever leads to make intercession at the right hand of the Father. Um, these these scriptural truths come crashing in on on Luther's life. Uh, and, and he's slowly 
has a, a, a whole new conception of, of, of what a pious Christian life looks like. Um, our access is to, is to the throne of grace is, is through Christ, uh, the only mediator. So uh, next, next week we'll, uh, we'll start to think a little bit about monasticism. Um, we have to get Luther uh, into the monastery before we can convert him and have him become a Protestant for us. Um, that, <laughs> that will be useful. Um, but the superstition, uh, the kind of world of, of, of saints, uh, is right there in Luther's early life. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the famous lightning bolt story, um, the electrical storm, a sort of freak electrical storm when Luther's riding his horseback from one town to another. And, and a lightning bolt strikes in a field near him, and his horse spooks, and he falls off. And his sort of foxhole prayer is, St. Anne, save me the local saint, and I'll become a monk. And so that's how Luther gets ushered into the monastery. So we're going to look at sort of Luther, uh, the history of monasticism a little bit. Um, there's some interesting things we can, we can talk about there, and, uh, and we'll carry on with uh, uh, sort of Luther's critique uh, of the superstitious world of, of, of saints. Yeah, any questions? Sure. You know what? It might be helpful if I uh, did a little book show and tell next time, if any of you are interested in some wider reading. Um, but in terms of classic Luther texts uh, from the earliest days, uh, The Freedom of the Christian is, is one uh, that he wrote in 1520. He wrote three incredible treatises in, the 15, in 1520. It was a big year, a big year publishing-wise for him. Um, he wrote other things too, but he wrote The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, a critique of the church and its sacraments. Um, it's a kind of a curious work, actually, because he starts out um, willing to throw away some of the sacraments. Um, by the time he gets to the end of the book, he's convinced himself that actually pretty all, all of them need to go, just baptism and the Lord's Supper. He starts out at the beginning saying, monastic, holy orders, the sacrament of becoming a priest, that, that needs to go, um, uh, the sacrament of penance, he, he's, he's critiquing. Um, anyways, but you're asking about uh, big Luther works. Uh, the Heidelberg Disputation from 1518 is uh, it's a little more scholastic. I mean, it's kind of like reading a textbook of theology. Um, he put forward a couple of theses and then debated and defended them um, in the Augustinian Monastery in, in Heidelberg. Um, his, well, you probably wouldn't want to read Address to the German Nobility. Um, his Christmas Sermons are really are really wonderful to read. Um, his uh, commentary in Galatians, if you really want to sharpen your pencil, put on your reading glasses, um, is is sort of rich with insight. Um, there's a, a collected reader. I think of the name of it. Maybe some of you know. Uh, there's a sort of uh, collected works of Luther um, in miniature that I can bring next week, and uh, it's in its eighth or ninth edition. Um, the big biography, if, if any of you are interested in, in uh, we don't have any other there, uh, is Heiko Obermann. Um, uh, a Dutchman. Um, Heiko Obermann wrote a book called Luther, Man Between God and the Devil, probably in the 
70s or early 80s. It's, it's a, a classic biography. It's really enjoyable to read. Um, so that gets us started. Any, any other thoughts or questions? And I can close this in, in prayer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, both and uh, disputations in, in monasteries and in universities were just the normal day-to-day business so in one sense this is what you did if you were a monk who was given over to the life of the mind you prepared theses, you, you debated theological points. Um, a lot of the debate is going on between monastic orders. We can talk a little bit about that next week. The monastic orders are, are every bit as sort of divided uh, and, and critical of each other as you know, Protestant denominations are today. Um, and so it's, it's part of the normal mode of business. Um, however... Most of the, the disputations that Luther got involved in, at some point, sort of turned nasty. Uh, I mean, the, the, the papal delegates would refuse to let uh, Luther or the other Protestants sit down. Uh, as soon as they would start speaking, uh, they'd cause some ruckus in the back so that nobody could hear. To even hear Luther's heresy would, would, was, you know, potentially damaging. And so they would storm out and know, spill their coffee in the back and <laughs> drop the offering plate, <laughs> do anything to make anything to make noise. Um, but L- Luther was surprisingly successful uh, in the early disputations. Uh, he had a remarkable gift for memory and and matched his Roman Catholic opponents uh, wit for wit. And at the end of the day, what finally won over the priests was that. Uh, one of the papal delegates is Johannes Eck. Eck would quote canon law, and Luther would respond with scripture. And that's not just sort of pious hagiography. Luther's our hero. We have the Bible on our side. It's true, but that's how he won the disputations. He responded with scripture. And, and, and those who were interested in the things of God and of the Bible were, were won over. So... All right, the children are probably going to break down the doors and, and come rushing out, so we better pray and, uh, and close our time here. Gracious Father, we, uh, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us in Christ our Lord. We thank you that um, we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you sent him for us and that he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. Um, give us great comfort, uh, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, our other great intercessor and comforter. Uh, Help us to live uh, faithfully uh, this Lord's Day and and bring us back eager and ready to be fed from your word this evening. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name.